Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For the rest of you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, as I mentioned in our scripture reading. This is our text for the next several Sundays. We're not going to move away from this too quickly because these verses are really foundational to our to our philosophy of ministry as a church, and I think there's a lot here that we have yet to unpack, even in our teaching through part of this chapter in the past. Um, but we are looking at 1 Corinthians 9, which is really set right in the middle of a larger section in 8, 9, and 10. And for the last several weeks, we have been studying through Paul's counsel to the church at Corinth in chapter 8, which is dealing with this whole issue of meat offered to an idol. And uh, what we've learned in looking at this very specific issue <clears throat> is that lar- that it, it was largely af- impacted and affected the, f- the believers in first century Corinth. We learned that love, not simply knowledge, must ground Christian conduct. We learned that the love, not simply knowledge, in and of itself, is the foundation and the grounds of Christian conduct. The Spirit of God through Paul's pen, sets before the church in chapter 8, the church in all places and all times, this priority and superiority of love as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Love is not enough in and of itself, excuse me, knowledge is not enough in and of itself. Love must also be the, is the foundation of, of godly conduct. This is a word we need to be reminded of in our churches again and again. And uh, knowledge by itself, he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, it makes uh, arrogant or literally puffs up. And, uh, but love, he says, when, it's sal- when, when knowledge is salted with love, it preserves, it builds up, and it edifies the church. And what Paul brought out of these opening verses of chapter 8 through his gentle correction was that the Corinthians had a wrong view of knowledge. They didn't understand what... Uh, their knowledge and how to use it properly. And uh, this was a city, we said, that was knee-deep, neck deep, excuse me, in idol worship. The roots of idol worship had wrapped themselves around the social dynamics as well as the commercial lives of the average citizen. And that was challenging enough to navigate as a Christian. But you add to it the internal conflict that even within this local church, there were disagreements between various factions as to whether whether or not it was acceptable for a believer to dine in an idol's temple. You had one group that were saying that were saying, well it's just meat. Meat is meat and uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Uh, God's given it to us, so so it should be fine to go ahead and and dine in an idol's temple because that's that's where the meat is. But you had another group whose consciences were convicting them saying, well no, it's it's wrong because because this is part of false worship, and this is what God saved us out of, or whatever their reasoning. And so you had various groups within the church, in the same church, who held contradictory views of this issue of meat offered to an idol, and it was dividing the church. It was leading to um, disunity. And so Paul offers, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8, a gentle correction, challenging them to walk in love toward one another. And when we saw in verses 4 to 6 that he reminds us of our common confession. And what binds the church together, he says, is not something external and superficial like whether or not you eat meat or not. What binds the church together are those eternal truths that we hold in common. And that is where real unity <clears throat> excuse me, is found. It is grounded in eternal truth 
And that is the only unity that is real and valuable. And the point of those verses was that because all of our lives in the church are bound up together in the triune God through faith in Christ, that dictates how we live and for whom we live. And how we treat God's people in his church is a big part of that, which is why Paul turned and made the application that he did in verses 7 to 13, which is what we looked at a couple of Sundays ago. While the strong, the kind of uh, the go-ahead-and-eat-meat crowd, if you will, they said, well, we have, everyone has knowledge. He under, Paul comes back in verse 7 and says, not everyone has the same knowledge. Not everyone has the same experiential understanding and the same grasp of the truth. We're not all in the same place spiritually. We're not all of the same level of, uh, we haven't attained to the same level of maturity. And so to cause your brother or sister to defile their conscience, that's a serious sin. That's something we never want to do, which is why he lays out this injunction in verse 9, where he says, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We need to be careful that in some way, perhaps in a way we can't even anticipate, some way that we don't even realize, we need to be careful that we're not making, uh, causing a stumbling block before another brother or sister. Choosing to dine in an idol's temple may not have been a stumbling block to the strong in the church, but that in and of itself wasn't enough to just say that it was okay to do or that it was right for them to move forward. The question they should have asked was, will my doing this or that put a stumbling block in front of another brother or sister in Christ? We're exhorted to be careful. We're to have our eyes open and our ears alert to what our, how our actions are affecting others so those not to become a rock of offense to those with, more sensitive, with a more sensitive conscience. And when you insist on having your own ways in matters of conscience, he says what you're doing is you are essentially building up the person whose conscience is more sensitive, you're building them up into sin rather than building them up into Christ-likeness. And so he says, for so, if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined or torn down, and the, this brother for whose sake Christ died." So to sin against a brother or sister in Christ, to, to do something that assaults their conscience, is to essentially train them up into sin because you're training them to ignore their conscience and you're wounding them, he says. This is graphic imagery. And he says in verse 12, not only are you hurting them, but in the end, ultimately, you are sinning against Christ because if you sin against your brother, who else are you sinning against? You're sinning against the God of heaven and earth. And so verse 12 says, And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ himself. That is something we never want to do, and no one would say that that's okay to do. The implication then we saw in verse 13 was, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to to stumble. So the issue for Paul isn't whether or not he gets to eat meat or not. That's not his concern. And it's not his concern whether or not his other 
uh, brothers and sisters in the church attain to the same level of understanding as him. That is not his concern either. The issue for Paul is, am I walking in love that edifies? And that, at a minimum, means not doing anything that would cause offense to another brother or sister. Paul's response, it might seem a little extreme. It might seem unnecessary, but what is more necessary than the building up of the body? And that's why he says in chapter 14, let all things be done for edification. This is the church's mutual care. So it bears repeating, and this is why we review so often in our sermons week by week, it bears repeating that the freedom in Christ that we have, that the scriptures speak of, is not a freedom to do whatever we want, wherever we want, we want, around whomever we want. That is a notion of absolute autonomy that is not in the scriptures, that is not biblical. Christian freedom is a freedom primarily from sin's tyranny over your heart and your life. It's Romans 6, right? You have been set free from sin's penalty and its dominating power over your life. And secondly, it is a freedom from selfishness and self-centeredness that allows you to then give your life away for the benefit of others. It's Galatians 5 verse 13. Do not let your, uh, your freedom be an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that means we'll often be called upon in our Christian walk to set aside some privilege, some right, some personal preference of ours to ensure that others in the body are not wounded, but rather are built up. So all of that is leading into chapter 9, which is what we're going to start looking at this Sunday. Uh, Paul is not done on this topic. He, he will talk about this both in chapters 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 8, we said, was primarily an ethical argument. Paul is making an ethical argument, saying you and I have a moral imperative. There's an oughtness to make every necessary sacrifice to avoid wounding our brother, assist, our brother and sister in Christ, in, in Christ. Love demands that we make the building up of the body our priority. As we step through the doorway of chapter 9, Paul advances the same argument. He hasn't moved on to something else. But rather, Paul advances the argument by force of his own personal example. So, uh, you know, as we look at the text, and we've already read it, these verses we, we see, especially in these opening verses, uh, both a defense, Paul makes a defense for his apostleship, and at the same time, as he gets further down in the chapter, he, makes, uh, he gives a description of mature Christian discipleship that we are called as believers to imitate. So there's two things happening in, this, in these verses. Uh, it is first a defense of Paul's apostleship because the Corinthians had called into question his credentials and his authority. And um, if you don't like the message, an easy way to ignore the message is to what? Shoot the messenger. And that's exactly what you see has been going on, and that's why Paul responds the way he does in the opening verses. But it's not just a defense of his apostleship. It is also a description of mature Christian discipleship, because in the end, he, as you get to chapter 11, verse 1, he says, he ends it all by saying, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. And so there's an there's a, there's a imitation 
there's a call to mimic, to follow in his footsteps, and to do what he's doing. And this chapter describes what Paul was doing, how he lived his life, what oriented his heart and mind. And so, like I say, in chapter 9, Paul sketches out, by personal example, a paradigm or a framework or a model for the proper use of our freedom in Christ. He sketches out here, by use of his own example, uh, a, a framework for the proper use of our Christian freedom. And he doesn't do this in a linear fashion. You know, sometimes when we go through the, most of the time when we go through the text, it's kind of like block, 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 and it's very easy to follow. But Paul, instead here, he, he doesn't go, you know, kind of point one, point two, point three. Instead, he is moving back and forth between a handful of themes in these verses. Paul sketches out this, this framework, this paradigm of our Christian freedom by bouncing between really uh, four, four themes. One, he, he bounces between the theme of his rights, his restraint, his race, meaning not his ethnicity, but his, uh, his, Christian, his Christian race, his Christian walk, and his reward. So you can, uh, he, he kind of bounces around in all these verses between talking about his rights, his restraint of those rights, his Christian race that he runs, and ultimately his reward. And each one of these is worthy of a message or two because these verses are foundational to our walk in Christ. Um, it, Paul's framework for mature Christian discipleship is one that we as a church have adopted to orient our philosophy of ministry. We did this years ago, and, uh, and it holds fast even today. As a local church, we are committed to glorifying God by making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And that comes right out of the text. That comes right out of verses 24 to 27. And it serves us well then to, to revisit that. It serves us well to keep our eyes on the prize and to stir up our hearts to these things again. I remember when I was playing basketball uh, in high school, the season was really long. It just seemed like it never ended. It started unofficially in the summers with summer camps and weight training and conditioning. It immediately turned into tryouts in the fall, and then it was practices every day and games and scrimmages every other day and practices in between. And it just it just seemed to go on all the way into the middle of the spring and I remember in the midst of all of that, it was, it was just like, it was easy to lose sight of the goal. Just every day, it was like, what am I going to do today? And, and so, you know, for us, that was to win a state title, which we never did. We never even came close to that. But, but that was the goal. And it can be the same way, though, in the church. I mean, as we go about the work of ministry, it is easy it is easy to get caught up in the studying and the praying and the meeting with one another and gathering on the Lord's Day and serving God's people and, and you know, all the things that are good things and necessary things and things that, that, that God calls us to do. But we can forget that all of that is moving towards something. All of that has a goal, a telos in mind, and that is namely our glorification together with Christ. It, it, our goal is glory. And we just memorized it, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
He says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. I mean, this is speaking of the full communion with God and his people that awaits those who've trusted in Christ for salvation and who run the race with endurance. And and there is that prize in front of us. That is what we are striving toward. And we have to keep our eye on that prize if we're going to keep pressing on. As I told the men on, on Wednesday morning, that 1 John 3 talks about the goal of the prize, the hope, the future hope that we have. And John says in 1 John 3, 2, everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. So as we see the goal, John says, our lives are brought into conformity with God's righteousness. And so we are sanctified in that way. So this morning, I just want us to look in some detail at verses 1 to 14, where Paul takes up this whole issue of his rights. What are his rights? And this is going to set up everything else he has to say about discipleship, Christian discipleship, in the subsequent messages that we'll look at. But I want to break the text down into three parts, just so you have kind of um, a path of where we're going. First, we're going to see Paul's rebuttal to the Corinthians. Uh, And then we're going to see his rights kind of spelled out. And then we will see his rationale for making those claims. So you can break it down into three parts. Um, Paul's rebuttal, Paul's rights, and Paul's rationale. So just looking at verses 1 and 2, we see Paul's rebuttal. He says, uh, now he's been dealing with some very strong-minded people, people who think they have knowledge, who are probably a little puffed up in their estimation of their own Christian walk. And um, they're asserting their rights, even when those things impact and hurt others. And he's explained to them why that is wrong in chapter 8. And my guess is this wasn't the first time he brought these things to bear. Because as the way he responds in these, chap- in these verses, it's very obvious that there is some dissension in the ranks, that they are questioning him and really questioning his apostolic authority. The things that he was saying were not resonating with what they wanted to do. And uh, they were likely, his counsel has been a hard pill to swallow. And when a heart is filled with pride rather than humble and willing to receive correction, um, and you don't have a strong counter argument to respond back to maybe prove your case, what do we often do? When a message comes that we don't like and we can't respond with a logical, coherent counter argument, we defer to what? We attack the, pres- we attack the messenger. And that's what you see happening, uh, likely, why Paul responds the way he, he does in this, this, uh, these verses. If you can discredit the messenger, it's a lot easier to ignore the message. And that's what he's doing. Uh, that's what they were doing, and that's why he responds like he does. Paul is bringing an apostolic word yet again that confronts what they wanted to continue to do. And he responds with... Uh, a defense of his apostolic credentials. They were saying things like, well, clearly Paul is not a real apostle because if he was, he would be supported in gospel ministry by us and others rather than working to provide for his needs. Remember, at this point, Paul is teaching and preaching in in the synagogues and stuff, but he is working as a tent maker and providing his own way. And so they were saying, well, see, that's proof that he's not a real apostle. If Paul were a true apostle, he wouldn't 
allow himself to be restricted in this manner, paying his own way. And of course, what's implied in that questioning of Paul's true apostleship is his Paul's authority. Is he really the one we should be listening to? If Paul's not a real apostle, then his words don't have real authority. And if they don't have real authority, well, then we don't have to obey them. They're questioning his apostolic authority because they do not like his message. And Paul's rebuttal is a onslaught, a torrent of rhetorical questions in verses 1 and 2. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The obvious answer to each of these questions is, of course, of course Paul is free. All believers in Christ are free. Of course he's an apostle. No one's seriously questioning, able to seriously question that. And the questions that follow that first question in verse 2 clarify exactly what he means when he says he's an apostle with a capital A. And um, so it'd be good for us just to remind ourselves what, what makes an apostle an apostle. Uh, well, there's two, criteria, two major criteria that Paul spells out for us. First, an apostle with a capital A is one who has both seen and been commissioned by the risen Lord. An apostle is one who has both seen and been commissioned by the risen Lord. He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? See, Paul believed, and the book of Acts confirms, that his experience on the Damascus Road was more than just a mere vision of Christ. It was clearly a resurrection appearance on par with the resurrection appearances that men like Peter and James and others experienced in those 40 days before Christ ascended back to heaven. You say, well, other people saw the risen Lord. In fact, Paul says hundreds of people saw the risen Lord. So, so what makes him an apostle, right? Everyone's that was an eyewitness, essentially could have been an apostle. So, but they're not. So why is Paul singled out here? Well, what's, what Paul and other, the other apostles, uh, what made them apostles with a capital A, wasn't just that they'd seen the risen Lord, but they had been commissioned by Christ personally. They had been commissioned by Christ personally. And in, in the case of Paul, we have confirmation of his commissioning, in Galatians 1, for example, where he says God called him to be an, a, a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, he affirms that he has indeed seen Christ and that he has been called to the Gentiles. So the first criteria of a true apostle is that they have seen the risen Lord and have been commissioned by him. Secondly, an apostle is one who was sent out to preach and establish churches, preach the gospel and establish churches. He says in verse 2, are you not, are, excuse me, are you not, excuse me, verse 1, have I not seen Jesus, Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And the point he's making there is that he was the founder of that church. 
You remember Acts 18 we, when we did the introduction to the book. Paul was there. He pastored that church. He, he founded that church. They were his, the fruit of his gospel labors. And, uh, and so he says, listen, this is what an apostle does. We go out and plant churches. He'll pick this up again in 2 Corinthians, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 13 to 16, when he calls out the false apostles who had come in and were seeking to displace Paul's attention uh, and his, his influence over the church. And he indicts them as for being false, false apostles, mostly because they were laboring in another man's territory. In other words, the mark of a true apostle is one who goes out, preaches the gospel, and establishes churches. So they couldn't have been apostles because they were going around meddling in, other, in another man's field, if you were. And so Paul's point here is that the Corinthians' very existence authenticates his true apostleship. He's like, you want proof that I'm an apostle? You're the proof. <laughs> You're the ones that would, you would, there would be no gospel in Corinth if we had not come there. And so you are, he says, the seal, the, authentic, the authenticator of my apostleship in the Lord. So an apostle is one who has seen the risen Lord and been commissioned by him, and also, and who has gone out and establishes churches in a new area. So the question becomes, are there apostles today? And the answer is, no, there are not. There are not. Now, there are men who take that title, but they are not apostles in the biblical sense. They were, the apostles were, were men called and gifted in those earliest decades of the church after Pentecost, and they are the foundation stones of the church, Ephesians 2 says. And when they passed from earth to heaven, so did their apostolic ministry. So while men may take the title of apostle and call themselves apostles in different uh, various church contexts, there are no more apostles, biblically speaking, because no one has seen the risen Lord. There may be some that go out and plant churches. There may be some who feel that they've been commissioned by God and they may view their ministry calling as a calling from God, but they have not seen the risen Lord and they have not been personally commissioned by him. So Paul's rebuttal is one of arguing that he is a true apostle. They've challenged his credibility. But that, his response is, is in service of a greater purpose. Paul's not just defending himself because he feels slighted. He's defending himself to serve as an explanation of his rights in verses 3 through 6. So we see Paul's rebuttal in verses 1 to 2, now his rights in verses 3 to 6. See, they were attacking his unwillingness. They were questioning, why would Paul not take support? Why is he not receiving patronage like some of the other apostles? And they were claiming that was evidence that he, he wasn't really an apostle, because if he was, he would take that help and that support. Now, he's put the issue of his apostleship to bed, essentially, in verses 1 and 2. Now he's going to spell out exactly what as he, as an apostle, is entitled to. He says, uh, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Right? So his point is this. 
he's going to spell out exactly what his rights are as an apostle. In this context, he shows that he's entitled to food and drink. That doesn't mean that he gets to consume food and eat drink or drink drinks, but that he has a right to do to have those things provided for him. What's what's kind of understood in the text is at the church's expense, that the church would provide for his basic necessities of food and drink. It, he was an apostle. He was a leader in the church, and he was fully devoted to the work. Paul, he says, and the other apostles were entitled to have their material needs provided for by the church. Verse 5, he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? So Paul's not saying there that he's allowed to get married. That's not what he means by take a wife. He has the idea, uh, he's saying that as an apostle, he has a right to take a believing wife along with him as he travels uh, in his ministry. That's what it means to take a wife. It has the idea of take as a companion while traveling. Uh, and he says, uh, a married apostle, he affirms, was uh, entitled to take his wife with him at the church's expense. Now, Paul wasn't married. We know that. But if he had been, you can imagine how important that would be. If you're traveling from city to city, from region to region, it would be exceedingly beneficial to have your wife with you, your helpmate, to encourage and comfort and confide in. Uh, And some of them obviously did. But the thing is, that's one more mouth to feed. That's one more bed to supply as you go from house to house. It's one more body to clothe, one more ticket to get on a boat. Like, all those things cost money. And having the church cover, again, what's implied there is having the church cover those expenses so that a wife could travel with her husband would be meaningful and important. So Paul reiterates that he, as an apostle, was entitled to the church's material support both for himself and for his family. Uh, If he had a family, he would have been entitled to have them supported by the church. And apparently some of the other apostles did, which is why he references them specifically in verse uh, 5. And he concludes in verse 6 with a hint of of sanctified sarcasm to kind of put an exclamation point on it all. He says, Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? So Paul's point is that he was indeed able not to work. If he didn't want to work, he didn't have to work. If that's what he chose to do, he would not have been wrong in any way. There was nothing standing in the way of his choosing not to work. So in these verses, 3 to 6, Paul has established that, he, that as an apostle, he has a right to have the church supply his needs to have a wife also who would accompany him in ministry and have her needs met, and that he was not, that, that he affirms that, not, that he did not have to work at a trade to make ends meet as an apostle. That wasn't a requirement. So he's made these claims, but what is the evidence of these claims? Like, it's one thing to say it, but what's the evidence that that's true? And that takes us to the third and final point that we see in verses 7 to 14. So we've seen Paul's, uh, his, re- excuse me, his rebuttal, his rights explained in verses 3 to 6. Now we're going to see Paul's rationale. His, uh, 
his logical defense of what he believes he's entitled to. And that leads us into um, verses 7 to 14. Paul calls three witnesses to the stand in these verses. First, he calls the witness of nature itself in verse 7. He says, however, not, excuse me, um, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now, this hardly needs any explanation. The proofs are self-evident. They're obvious. No soldier serves at his own expense. He would be supported by the king or the government who conscripted him. No farmer in that day would plant a vineyard and not enjoy some of the yield that would, that field produced. No no one tending sheep or goats, which was a very common thing in that time, would let the milk go to waste. They would use it to feed their families. So Paul says the witness of nature itself validates that everyone expects to be sustained by the fruits of their labors. This is, this is self-evident. So it was with Paul as an apostle. It is perfectly reasonable that he would be sustained by his spiritual flock, particularly those churches that owed their very existence to his pastoral labors. So he appeals to the witness of nature in verse 7. In verses 8 to 12, and even in verse 13, he appeals to the witness of the law. So if you look at verse 8, he says, Am I not speaking these things according to human judgment? Am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. But God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Again, Paul is not content to let his argument rest on the way things are in nature. He actually argues his case that he is entitled to these rights from Scripture. He appeals to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. And uh, in these verses, uh, and particularly the, the, the uh, muzzling the ox, and, and Paul explains that, that wasn't God's concern wasn't the animal's well-being, or certainly part of it, but ultimately that is written for us to show that we who have sown spiritual things should also reap material things that we need, right? We should bear the fruit, of, we should receive the fruits of our labors. And then in verse 13, he again appeals to the law. He says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Again, he's referring to God's instruction to Aaron and his sons in Leviticus chapter 6 and in chapter 7. Both Jews and Gentiles, this would have been common knowledge, both Jew and Gentile in whether it was the true temple of God in the tabernacle, or whether it was a, a pagan temple, the priests who served made, in making sacrifices, they shared in that food, right? They would offer a portion, they would keep a portion. This was their supply. They had no fields. They had no inheritance. Scripture says God was going to be their inheritance through the provision of the sacrifices. And so, and so both in Jewish and pagan temples, the priests 
were partakers of that sacrificial food. And uh, this is what Paul has been saying all along. Those who are employed in the sacred responsibility and work have a right to get their material provision from that work. Lastly, Paul appeals to the witness of Christ himself. So he's appealed to the witness of nature, the witness of the Old Testament law, and thirdly, the witness of Christ in verse 14. He says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This uh, essentially clinches the argument with a word from Christ's earthly ministry. The Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel to receive their living from the gospel. This is a reference to Luke 10, verse 7, and Matthew 10 and verse 10, where he says, Jesus says, the workman is worthy of his wages. He, he sent them out to make disciples, to preach the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And he says, don't bring all your provisions with you. Go out with just the basics and trust me that you will have what is necessary, that God would provide what they needed through those whom they ministered to. So Paul appeals in these verses to the witness of nature, the law, and even the Lord himself as his rationale for claiming that he as an apostle, as a leader in the church, was entitled to, he had a, he had a right and true claim to their material support from them and from other churches in which he labored. Now, you say, that all of that seems like an odd thing to argue, right? Why would Paul spill all this ink in verses 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 14? All this ink to validate, yes, I am a true apostle, and that as an apostle, I have an undeniable claim to be supported by the church, why go to all this effort to prove that you're entitled to something that you don't actually take, that you don't actually use? And the answer is this. Paul had to first establish his apostolic credential and his right to material support before he could point to it and show that he was, in fact, voluntarily giving it up. Right? You can't choose to forfeit something you're not entitled to. I, I can't, if I were to stand up to you here this next week and say, good news, guys, I've decided not to collect Social Security next year. And you would say, okay, well, you're not 67, and, and you have no right, you, have, you, know, you can't defer something that you have no claim to. That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nonsense statement. And, and, and so... It's not even an option for me, so I can't defer it. I can't, I can't boast about setting it aside because I had no claim to it in the first place. And, and so, Paul, so Paul here, he can lean into why, he leans into why he chose to forfeit his rights. In order to do that, he has to first establish that said rights exist and that he has a claim on them. And having done that, that he proven that, yes, I am an apostle, and that I, as an apostle, I am entitled to the church's material support, 
he can then say, and I think he can do this quite effectively, he's able to stand back and say, see, I have chosen of my own free will not to assert my rights for the benefit of the church. This is his point. And that's what he says at the latter part of verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul didn't want anything to stand in the way of the gospel's progress in their midst. He didn't want anything to slow down the movement of the good news. He was called and commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, I am willing to set aside even good things, things that I am entitled to in the scriptures that the Bible says I could lay claim to. I am choosing not to make use of the good things for the best things. The free and unhindered movement of the gospel. And friends, Paul's example is a challenge to you and to me. Will you, will I set aside morally neutral things? Maybe even setting aside good things. Things that you and I are entitled to individually as Christians. Are we willing to set those things aside for the gospel and the edification of the church? That the key to everything is for us what it was for Paul. We want no hindrance to the gospel. None. And Paul says it in verse 23 I do all things for the sake of the gospel so as to become a fellow partaker of it. So God and his glory are worth every sacrifice, they're worth giving up everything that you can give up. For the glory of Christ. Peter says to Jesus in Mark 8, he says, uh, Behold, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. I mean, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, life eternal. But many who are first will be last, he says in the last first. So the point is, this is why I say chapter 9 is a, is a model, it's a paradigm for mature Christian discipleship. Paul got it. He got it. C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, First and Second Things, he says, quote, you can't Get second things by putting them first. You can, you can get second things only by putting first things first. And the example he uses is this. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but the proper pleasure of dog keeping. <laughs> now, I'm not attacking dog folk here. I'm just, that's his example, not mine. Right? You, you can be so consumed with something that it's meant to be kind of a secondary or tertiary thing that it can lead you off of what's best. That sounds so much like Mark 8 and Matthew 6, right? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and what? Forfeit his soul. 
That's making second things first, and you lose it all. But Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added unto you. So C.S. Lewis famously said, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. That's what Paul is getting at in this chapter. He was willing to set aside good things for the best things. He was willing to set aside rights that he was technically entitled to that are right and good biblically things. But he was concerned for him anyway that that would stand in the, pro- stand in the way of the progress of the gospel, that it might lead to accusations of, of patronage in the sense of a kind of quid pro quo that, that maybe somehow he was, uh, on, he was on the payroll with some of these leaders in these churches, not so much a servant of God. He says, I don't want anything to stand in the way of the gospel. I don't want to be beholden to anybody. And so for me personally, I'm choosing not to take advantage of those things for the greater benefit of the church. And that is the argument he's been making all along. And so that's why I say his example is advancing the argument that he's making all the way to the end of chapter 10, where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jew, to Greek, to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own gain, but the gain of the many, so that they may be saved. And then he says what? Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So this is our, as I say, this is the paradigm for proper use of Christian freedom. And next week we're going to see Paul zero in on his restraint. He's talked about his rights. Next Lord's Day we'll see how he talks about his restraint, what he sets aside, which he goes into in the latter verses of chapter 9, what he sets aside and why he sets it aside. If we prepare for the Lord's table, let me ask the Lord's blessing on that time. Lord, again, we are reminded and confronted that while we have many things that the scriptures say are true and right and good, we need to sometimes put those good things into the background to pursue the best things. We need to sacrifice the good things for the best and the greatest thing, which is, of course, your glory and your glory enlarged through the salvation of sinners. Lord, we pray if there's any here among us whose hearts are not seeking the kingdom of God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, perhaps they are putting second things first. We pray, Lord, that they would cease striving and rest in your provision of salvation that comes only through faith in your cross work and your resurrection. Pray, Lord, that you draw hearts to you, that you would orient our hearts and minds around those good things, but also ultimately around those great things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.